morning. You have rejected us, O Lord, O God, and burst forth upon us. You have been angry. Now restore us. You have shaken the land and tore it open. Mend its fractures, for it is quaking. You have shown your people desperate times. You have given us wine that makes us stagger. But for those who fear you, you have raised a banner to be unfurled against the bow. Save us and help us with your right hand, that those you love may be delivered. God has spoken from his sanctuary. In triumph I will parcel out Shechem and measure off the valley of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine and Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet, Judah my scepter. Moab is my washbasin. Upon Eden I toss my sandal. Over Philistia I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, O God, you who have rejected us and no longer go out with our armies? Give us aid against the enemy, for the help of man is worthless. With God we will gain the victory, and he will trample down our enemies. May these words be added to your hearts. Please be seated. This year, 2013, is our 60th anniversary as a church. It was 1953 that our first congregation, a pretty small group, met together. And about a year or so, we found, tucked away in a box, as we often find things tucked away in boxes, the original charter of the church, signed by 20 or so people, including Elizabeth Highfield, uh, the wife of her first pastor, who turns, turned 99 this week. Uh, her daughter, Anna Marie. Is Anna Marie here? She's not here. Too bad, too bad. If you see her next week, um, tell her you're, you're glad that she's a part of our church. Uh, Anna Marie is the mother of Frank Isler and of Doris Swanberg, who many of you know, and then their kids, etc., um, the charter now has been framed, and we're going to hang it up in our foyer pretty soon. So in honor of our 60 years, I thought it'd be fun just to preach for the next little while on the Psalm 60, 60 through 69. And we begin it today with Psalm 60. Now, Psalm 60 is not a happy psalm, certainly not to begin with. David is lamenting, even accusing God, that God has rejected David and his people, the army. There's a little paragraph just before the psalm starts, the heading, that tells us when in David's story the psalm takes place. When David strove with Aram Naharaim and with Aram Zobah. And so for this we have to go back to 2 Samuel chapter 8. In 2 Samuel 8, in the first couple of verses, the author of Samuel just quickly glosses over two of David's successful military campaigns. And then he spends 11 verses, a fairly large amount of text, outlining in summary fashion the period into which this psalm falls. David is strengthening his borders to the northeast 
at Aram Naharayim, at the Euphrates River. There he defeats Hadadezer, king of Zobah. I'm glad that Brian and Ashley did not name their girl Hadadezer. When the Syrians try to help that king, David routes their army and then establishes his own garrison outpost in the city of Damascus and makes that whole area subject to himself and to Israel. David receives gifts from the king of Hamath, who had been at war also with Hadadezer. Verse 12 of 2 Samuel 8 mentions very quickly that David subdued Edom and Moab and Ammon and the Philistines and Amalekites and the destruction of 18 thousand Edomites at the hands of David's commanders-in-chief as David's, uh, and David's subjugation of Edom gets particular notice at the end of those verses, 2 Samuel 8. So if you're writing your Bibles, by Psalm 60, maybe just make a note of that context. The whole section describes David's crushing of one enemy after another and the expanding and reinforcing of Israel's entire northeastern to southwestern Border. David's, arm, David's army is virtually unstoppable. And yet, it's in the context of this that David writes this psalm. Psalm's an emotional roller coaster for David. Despair at the beginning, an expression of confidence at the end, and this sort of panicky dialogue between David and God in the middle. Now, having read 2 Samuel 8, we know how all this turns out, but Psalm 60 begins with David in despair at what feels like imminent and humiliating defeat. David's army is on the retreat. David fears that the battle will be lost. And God had regularly promised to David his own ongoing presence, establishing David as the king of a secure Israel that he would give David success wherever he went. And David's victories, he routinely credited the Lord with. And so, if his army seems to be suffering a terrible defeat, then David also assumes that God is behind that. And David doesn't know why that would be. Oh God, you have rejected us. You've broken our defenses. You have been angry. Oh, restore us. You've made the land to quake. You have torn it open. Repair its breaches, for it totters. You've made your people see hard things. You've given us wine to drink that makes us stagger. David not only feels like God has abandoned him, he feels that God actually has defected to the other side. God's not only not helping Israel, he's actually fighting against them. That's the only explanation for David for what's going on. But then David also says of God, you have set up a banner for those who fear you that they may flee to it from the bow. In field battle throughout much of history, an army would have a standard, a banner, a flag that would be visible to everybody on the battlefield. It was a a visual rallying point, a call to courage for the soldiers. And if the standard fell... It would be an indication that the army was on the run and the tide of battle was turning against them. In Stephen Crane's novel, The Red Badge of Courage, the main character, a man named Henry Fleming, finds himself in battle. And when the flag bearer goes down, Fleming rushes forward, grabs the flag, 
carries it proudly at the head of his regiment's charge. And another soldier in his regiment actually captures the enemy's flag and brings it triumphantly back to their own side of the battle. Now, why is this a triumphant gesture? It's just a flag, right? But a flag, a standard, meant something. It represented its army. It was a symbol of the army's identity. It was a rallying point if they needed it. And God has set up a standard. He's put up a flag to which his people can flee and find respite. And the standard is himself. Their identity is to be found in their relation to him. It is his army. And David now flees to God, out of breath, as it were, pointing behind himself and gasping, They're coming! We needed you out there. Where were you? For goodness sake, help us or all is lost. Verse 5, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand. We are desperate in this battle. Help us. And that very same prayer would be prayed later on by other kings in Judah's history. King Asa, faced by an Ethiopian army, prayed, O Lord, there is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Lord, for we rely on you. And in your name we have come against this multitude. Jehoshaphat. Threatened by the armies of Moab and Ammon and Edom, cried out, We are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And on both of those occasions, Israel crushed their enemies. So what will be God's response to David? Verses 6 and 7, Psalm 60, God declares that David and his people are God's. In triumph, I will parcel out Shechem, a city, and divide the valley of Sukkoth. God has recently established David's rule here as God's chosen king. And therefore, God declares it to be a part of his own kingdom. He goes on to declare his ownership and commitment to the rest of Israel. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet, military strength symbol. Judah is my scepter, the place of God's king. God is totally identifying himself with Israel, with David's people. I'm your God. You are my land. You are my people. And the implication is that no matter how the war seems to be going, God has not, in fact, rejected them. They are still his. He has not gone over to the enemy. In fact, God makes a point of saying that as Israel is his people, therefore Israel's enemies are his enemies. He considers them with contempt, basically saying, I'm going to wash my feet with Moab and wipe my feet and toss my shoes onto Edom, my mudroom, as it were. I'll proclaim my dominion over Philistia. Don't worry, David. But then David again has to dialogue back. If you give us victory here, will you see us through the whole campaign? We're getting weaker, and we've got work to do in Moab, and then in Edom, the strongest fortress of all. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, O God, who have rejected us? Reminds me of uh, of Moses' plea to God. 
after the travesty of the golden calf, Moses intercedes for the people successfully with God so that God does not destroy Israel. But God says that as they go to the promised land, he says, I will send my angel ahead of you, but I know what these people are like, and I'm not going to go with you, because if I did, I might end up destroying them. To which Moses' response is, if your presence does not go up with us, then don't send us from here. If you're not with us, we don't even want to go. Who will lead me to the promised land if not you? And David seeks that very same assurance. Who will go with us after this? I look around at what's going on in this battle and it sure doesn't seem like you're going to go with us. But again, he pleads, as he did before, grant us help against the foe, for the help of man is worthless. An army is of no use if you are not with that army. And then he ends with these words, with God, we will gain the victory, and he will trample down our enemies. David ends the psalm, as he so often does, with an expression of confidence. So many of David's songs take the basic structure of, where are you, Lord? This painful situation is overwhelming, but I trust in your goodness, and I will be all right. Psalm 60 is the same. You have rejected us. Lord, please save us. Are you with us? Yet I trust that through God, the enemies will be trampled down, and we will be all right. Now, good for David. Okay, now we all know a little bit of slice of Israel's military history from 3,000 years ago. All right, great, let's go home. But seriously, what does this have to do with me? What does it have to do with us? Right? As a church, we've never donned armor and weapons and marched out to face an enemy. We do not face a physical Enemy. There are many Christians in the world who do face very physical enemies, real men bearing real swords and clubs, setting real fires, firing real guns, giving physical beatings, putting in real jails, taking the physical life of God's people. This psalm has a lot to say to the persecuted church. But what about us? Well, each of us faces enemies things that come at us, things that threaten to overwhelm us, to make us wonder about the presence of God. And though we're not on the battlefield, many of us can resonate with what David feels and expresses. Has God rejected us? Where was he when this happened? Had he left us for that moment, turned his back away for a minute? And anyone who has ever asked the question, why me, or how could God let this happen to me, has asked David's question. God, I needed you out there. The car accident, my kid's health, this crisis, it's killing me. If you don't save me, I'm lost. Because if God was for me, this would not, this could not have happened. To yell out to God, what's going on? I need you, is the right thing to do. It's much better to beat on God's chest than to just cry out in anger and turn away. Fine then, if you're going to be like that, I want nothing to do with you. But then to be able to hear God say, you are mine. Your enemies are my enemies. I too, says God, 
hate, pain, and death and estrangement. But I will shout in triumph over them. It feels like defeat right now. But at the end of the battle, you will stand in absolute and forever victory with me. There's an incredible amount of comfort in that. There's a peace that comes with that. And not all the questions get answered, but God's affirmation of carrying you is a pretty powerful reality. The psalm could also say something not just to us, but to the church at large. Jesus' people have enemies as well. Sin and evil and things that go with it. There's no denying that we live in a world that is clearly broken. Bombs go off in marathons. Missiles from Israel to Syria. Car bombs in Somalia. Abortion clinics, psychiatrists, jails, hospitals, morgues, orphanages, armies, police, abuse, crime, divorce, loneliness, addiction, relationship strain, greed, envy, gossip, fear, famine. The world is not as it should be. Profoundly broken. The Bible speaks of this as the kingdom of darkness. It's the outworking of everything that goes directly against Everything that, uh, everything that is good in God, God's perfect character, everything that God values, the kingdom of darkness. But against this kingdom, God in Christ has established a beachhead in the kingdom of God in which the kingdom comes and moves forward. Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so Jesus cast out demons and healed and forgave and raised from the dead and so on. He himself was raised to life by the power of God. And the apostles did the same in the name of Jesus. Thousands of people came to Jesus, hundreds of outposts of this gospel. And then something happened. Somewhere along the line, the church became the establishment. Religion instead of faith. The kingdom of God became Christendom. And it seemed, despite some beautiful expressions of the kingdom of God, Christians who loved and lived and died for the gospel, but it seemed that the tide of evil became stronger, stronger than ever. And in our day, it certainly feels like that. I'm not sure that evil itself is on the increase, But we're certainly faced with it more blatantly. Computers, TV, and other media means that we see it as it happens. In this communication age, we are aware like never before of evil in the world. And the church seems like the weaker army, doesn't it? Being pushed onto the defensive. Here we are living as on a raft in an ocean in a hurricane, adrift and at risk. Is God for us or not? Oh Lord, you have rejected us. You have made us see hard things. Save us. Well, God has in fact promised that death will die, evil be destroyed, and all of its symptoms, what I mentioned earlier, bombs, war, crime, grief, all of those things will disappear as God in his time brings history to a close and ushers in eternity. And for us, that day can't come soon enough. 
So this Psalm 60 speaks to our personal pains. It speaks into the world evils. And these are things that we see and experience and feel. But as we see the psalm, now looking back on it from our New Testament perspective, from A.D. looking into B.C., we have a psalm that shows us that these things are merely expressions of a spiritual reality. And not only that we live in that reality, but that that reality lives in us. The enemy is not what happens around us. It's not what happens to us. The enemy is what happens in us. More accurately, simply put, the enemy is ourselves. And more tragically, most of us didn't know, many of us still don't know, and the world around us doesn't know that the real enemy is internal. So what needs to happen is not for God to change everything around us so that we can think to ourselves, what a wonderful world. It is the more insidious sin that must be dealt with, the sin within. And as we realize that, then the words of this psalm suddenly become more desperate. Oh God, you have rejected us. You have been angry. How could we not be rejected? Sin does evoke anger in God. It is the right response of a morally perfect God to the grossness of sin. And so judgment and wrath are ours. Oh, man, restore us. God, if you don't do something, we are lost. Utter destruction. And the painful thing is that it's deserved destruction. It is we, it is humanity that has become God's enemy. By our sins, we have turned from him, not the other way around. But God will... And must crush the enemy. And if the enemy is evil and the heart is desperately wicked, all the inclinations of the heart only evil all the time, then our attempts at self-salvation are vain and our destruction is sure. When God destroys evil, that means us. What hope is there? But God has raised up a standard to which those who fear him can flee. And rather than the expected rejection, we are surprised to hear God's voice. Even if a mother forgets her own child, I will not forget you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. He who comes to me, I will never cast out. And the cross and the resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus is the answer to Psalm 60. That your beloved ones may be delivered, give salvation by your right hand. To which God says, did I not make promises? Have I not said that you are mine? Did I not say that there would be one who would bear the punishment for your sins and that instead you would have peace? And so Jesus comes. No one comes to the Father except through him. There is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. 
Jesus died, he is raised to life, forgiveness of sins is preached in his name, the recreation of people takes place, the new has come, grace is given. It is grace, lest anyone should boast of any righteousness that is our own. It's the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. And as we flee to the standard, to the cross of Christ and to Christ himself, we find actually that we have not fled, but God has drawn us. Vain is the salvation of man, but with God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our enemies. This is what we read in the New Testament book of Colossians, chapters 1 and 2. God has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Read that God has set aside the record of our sin and nailed it to the cross, that he disarmed the powers and authority of this dark kingdom and has triumphed over them by the cross. And this is the language of battle. God has gone to war for us. His son, the commander-in-chief. His weapon, the cross. His victory, absolute. I want to read something to you. I have to grab my Bible. Familiar words. Romans chapter 8. Verses 31 to 39. Hear the word of the Lord. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long, we're considered as sheep to be slaughtered? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that wonderful? Let me pray. Lord, we look at our own lives and feel overwhelmed. We look at the world, see the power of evil at work. We look into our hearts and see what is there and realize that all that we can do is cry to you and to flee to you. We are so thankful that in Christ, nothing can actually separate us from your love. By grace there is forgiveness and rescue. In Christ there is victory. 
In you, there is absolute security. We are so grateful. Please remind us often that we are yours. And remind us of what you have done. We do not dare to lose sight of that. And even this morning, as we think very intentionally now about the death of Christ for us, we think, we reflect on you and on our place in Psalm 60. Thank you, Jesus, for your death and our life. Amen.